to another episode of the Elise Yeezy Show. I'm your host, Elise Yeezy, and today I'm joined by Dr. Shahom. Yes, you nailed it first time. Well done. Thank you so much, Lizzie, for having me on. I know, I'm well good like that with the pronunciations. Actually, I can't usually pronounce anything. One time I pronounced tortilla as tortilla and my audience didn't let me live it down. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got you on today because you are a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. A forensic psychiatrist, yeah. Forensic, a consultant forensic psychiatrist, and you've worked at Broadmoor. So I'd really like to delve into that and talk about psychiatry, Broadmoor, and Jimmy Savile. Absolutely. Firstly, let's start off. What made you want to get into psychiatry? Were you a little kid dreaming of being a forensic psychiatrist? <laughs> you fell into. I, I, the, it would be a great answer if I could say that I was always like really motivated and I had a mission and I had a plan, but the reality is I just kind of bumbled my way into it. So I think I've always been interested in criminality mm-hmm. from listening to gangster rap as a kid to watching all the mob movies like Goodfellas was and still is my favorite film of all time. I've always been sort of fascinated by gangs and violence, but I never really even thought that that could be my career. Uh, and then I went to medical school, probably for all the wrong reasons. Uh, I wasn't, I didn't particularly think about or care about my future profession, but uh, my parents are Indian, obviously. So they were very keen on me doing medicine to, uh, to reinforce that stereotype. And I got the grades. So I just basically went to medical school, um, didn't take it very seriously, partied, failed a few exams, had a few resits, but just about managed to make my way through. And as you probably know, in medical school, you do lots of different placements, right? So you do, you know, GP, surgery, physical medicine. And I did psychiatry and it, something kind of clicked the first time I did it. So I, I didn't get into forensics for, until further down the line, but psychiatry itself. So typically I go onto these psychiatric units and I talk to people either who'd were at the lowest ebb. So they had addiction problems or that post-suicide uh, or they were delusional, psychotic. So they had all these ideas, this kind of fantasy internal world that was disconnected from reality. And I just found it fascinating, you know, being able to, to talk to them about it. It's a really fine line because you don't want to encourage their delusions, uh, but you want to elicit the symptomatology. Uh, and to my surprise, I just had a knack for it. So whereas I wasn't particularly strong in most of my other modules and only just sort of scraped through, I just I understood psychiatry and I had a kind of connection with it. So I always kn- knew that I wanted to work within psychiatry, so within assessing and uh, treating mental illnesses. And then once I was a junior psychiatrist, I had all these little placements and almost on a whim, I did forensic psychiatry as a placement. It's quite rare because there's only a, a limited number of forensic units compared to like general adult wards. So the placements are quite hard to come by. And again, once I was there, I, I realized there's something about it that kind of drew me in more than other fields of psychiatry. So specifically, everybody that was there who had a severe mental illness and who had committed a very serious offense, there's always a reason. There's always some sort of backstory. Uh, and often it's the same reason so it's either you know poverty drug addiction mm-hmm. uh, really irresponsible lax parenting or even physical and sexual abuse so there's always something you can piece together as a story and I don't know if you if you're into superhero films clearly I am uh, but for me it's the villains that have the backstories that are far more kind of charismatic that's the ones that you're really interested in so it's kind of the same with my patients yeah, they're always more engaging, the villains. Like a good villain story in a film, you should be able to see where they're coming from. Absolutely, like, yeah. Good writing. As a psychiatrist, do you 
have you self-assessed and introspected on yourself as to why it's so appealing the kind of because it's more of it's it's a bit of the darker side of life because I have that too I have that I find reading about you know people when they have delusions or films about it or whatnot I find that quite fascinating too Mm. have you introspected on it do you know exactly where it comes from Uh, that's a really good question I don't think I have I think I've definitely looked at certain aspects of my attitude and outlook and my mental health so to give you a specific example, I'm really impatient naturally. Uh, and I, I always have a very high unrealistic expectation of how things are going to turn out always. Yeah. Uh, so recently it's been through media work, through my YouTube channel, through my book. So, you know, I've put in all this work and I expect a certain number of sales or expect a certain number of views. And I'd say 99% of the time I don't get it. And it's really annoying and it's frustrating. So I get to this pattern of kind of questioning whether I want to do it and having to talk myself out of quitting. I do that almost every week. And the weird thing is I know that it's some, that's a flaw with me and I know it's an unhelpful pattern, uh, but I can't stop it. I can't sort of help feeling the way that I feel, even though logically lots of other people are supportive and tell me that I have to be patient, blah, blah, blah. So there's a disconnect between what logically I should be thinking and the way that I actually feel. So I suppose I've looked at that part of it, but not the actual morbid fascination with crime. I don't know where that comes from. That's interesting that even for yourself, psychiatrist, there's still that disconnect between the logic and the emotions. Which is exactly what therapy is about. It's about unpicking that, but I'm uh, too too tied up in my own life to consider therapy. What about you? Where's where's, where's your sort of interest in the macabre come from, do you think? I don't know, because it's always been there, because I remember being a very little kid. My dad would take me to the library and I'd always go towards the paranormal section, the aliens, the Loch Ness Monster, read those kind of books. And then getting the Internet, it um, developed more into looking up conspiracy theories. People laugh about this, but going on the David Icke forums when I was 13. And I think like, you know, conspiracies, paranormal, creepy stories goes hand in hand with horror sometimes because it's like the fear of the unknown, the unnatural. Uh, I started reading Stephen King at an early age. I don't know what it is personally. it's just I I find it more enticing than happy stuff I don't know (laughs) yeah well I suppose happy stuff's boring isn't it like when you look at decent dramas like uh, I mentioned Game of Thrones only because I've been re-watching it recently with my wife the reason it's so good isn't you know the the dragons and the magic is actually about the problems and the tensions between all the people the arguments and the characters and the power dynamics that's i think that's just human nature to find that more fascinating than sort of happy-go-lucky feel-good films or romantic comedies i'm not into all of that crap have you seen the walking dead no uh because there's a character in it called negan and he's my favorite character um because in the graphic novels he's hilarious and in the actor who plays him in the series he's very good as well but he's um, quite a conflicting character. And I just find that much more enticing than yeah. uh, I'm going to be good for the sake of being good. I suppose because you don't really, I don't know about you, but I've not really come across many people in my life who are good just for the sake of it. Everyone yeah. has their own agenda, which is fine. Everyone has their own motives for doing things, but it's very rare to get like a 2D cutout of, I'm just going to be a hero for the sake of it. You know? Yeah, so I suppose in my line of work, it's kind of the opposite. So I meet people who've done some horrific crimes, everything from, you know, abusing children to killing family members. Uh, and just like you said, they're not fully, purely evil. I mean, I, I've never used the word, you know, evil in, a, in an assessment, but the construct of evil, nobody's really fully that. Mm. 
there's always something that's happened there's some sort of inferiority complex often so they're either bullied relentlessly as children uh, either in school or by all the siblings or by or overlooked by their parents or they're in a job that they don't feel is particularly fulfilling or they they feel underappreciated there's always some some form of inferiority complex sometimes it's not easy to find and you have to really dig down but um it's always there yeah i think about that a lot because nothing happens in a vacuum there's always you can always find a cause and effect yeah so, but we can get onto that in a bit because i've got a lot of questions about that kind sure. of thing but firstly how does being a forensic consultant psychiatrist work talk me through it like what, what's a day in the life like <laughs> okay I'll, I'll very briefly summarize what it what it what we do and then i'll talk yeah. about a day in life so uh psychiatrists assess people with mental illnesses and forensic psychiatrists assess and rehabilitate people who've committed serious crimes so this kind of my work can be split into a few different areas the bit that i do right now that i find the most fascinating and most fulfilling uh, is expert witness work so i will assess somebody who's committed a serious crime, so for example, a murder, and I will look at all of the information. Obviously, I assess them in person, but you can't just take uh, defendant's words at face values. I'm sure you can imagine because people do try and feign mental illness. But I look at stuff like previous medical notes, GP records. Uh, uh, if there's an offence, I might see CCTV footage if it's been picked up. I might look at um, the witness statements for the people involved. So the victim, if they're still alive, random strangers who witnessed what happened, police officers who make, made the arrest. And then finally, I look at objective evidence about their mental state now. So if they're on remand, I'll speak to prison officers or look through the, the uh, prison medical records. And basically what I'm looking at, I mean, it's lots of things, but the, the most important thing is whether they've got a mental illness, yes or no, whether they had active symptoms at the time of their offence, yes or no. If they had symptoms, did those symptoms control them or decrease their criminal culpability, yes or no. If the answer is uh, no of any of those questions, then they go to prison and my job is kind of done. If the answer is yes, then I have to try and figure out if they need hospitalisation and what kind of type of treatment. So that broadly is all the expert witness work. And then the other uh, end of my job is working in prison as a, as a psychiatrist to help people who are not so unwell, they need to be in hospital, but still have mental health needs. And finally, working in secure units. So you've already mentioned Broadmoor, which is probably the most famous uh, example of that, but there are many, many more. So that's actually trying to rehabilitate people who, who have gone past that court uh, process, who are really dangerous until they're safe enough, make them safe enough to, to be released back into society. Um, as for what a typical day looks like, I'm quite blessed in that I've structured my work so that I work two days a week for the NHS. So I go to two criminal courts and the rest of the time I kind of pick and choose cases that I want. So solicitors or the CPS, the Crown Prosecution Service, will, will instruct me and say, am I interested in this case? Uh, and I will arrange my own appointments in prison. So I did a prison visit for somebody who committed murder yesterday uh, and I probably only see them for about an hour or two, but most of the time, I write the report looking at all those evidence. I'm, I'm picking out all these symptoms and diagnosing. So even though it is interesting and you know I like to talk about it, I have to say that probably 80 to 90% of my time is in a coffee shop typing up reports. So there is a sexy part to it, but there's a lot more time that's uh, the mundane kind of background administration. Yeah, it's kind of like being a cop really. Yeah. Because of being a yeah. police officer, it's just mainly doing paperwork. I was just thinking then when you said that you had to see someone who's been accused of murder or they've done the murder uh, in this particular case it's very clear that they did the murder so the the uh the issue is whether they were mentally unwell at the time but whether they can get like a finding of diminished responsibility 
I suppose if you've been doing this for a while, it gets easier. But maybe to begin with, is it hard to keep emotions out of it? Because if you're meeting someone and say they've committed a horrendous crime or they've done something to a child, I'd imagine that there's there's an automatic revulsion in wanting to deal with these people, even though it's your job. Is it hard to keep emotions out or have you just gotten better or is it easy to compartmentalize? Yeah, uh, I think it's a great word, compartmentalize, can't say it, compartmentalize. So I think that I'm, I'm, I think I'm pretty good at that. And I'm not fully sure why I can kind of separate myself from the act of what they've done. I think maybe I've got slightly psychopathic tendencies, maybe. Um, but I don't think it's come from working in forensics. So even though I've, I've seen hundreds of criminal cases, I think I've always been a bit like that. I've always been quite detached. Like I've, I've been so... I don't know if entertain's the right word, but so fascinated by violence since I was a kid that I've always, I've not found it that shocking. Uh, so I think that's just part of my natural personality uh, traits. And again, I kind of stumbled into forensics. So it wasn't something that was, that was, that was like pre-organized or pre-planned. So that's one thing. The other thing is I'm really clear in my head before I assess somebody what my role is to take this person that I assessed yesterday. My job is not to decide whether they were guilty or not guilty or what kind of length of prison sentence they should have. There's a judge in the court and I have to uh, trust that they're gonna do their part of the role properly, the court system. My job is only to determine exactly those things I was talking about, whether they've got a mental illness. So if I know that in my head going into an assessment, then that should theoretically decrease my emotional investment in it. And finally, I'd say the third factor, um, Lizzie, is that I'm just really, really busy with the rest of my life. So. As well as my actual work work, I've got all my YouTube and, and media stuff going on. And then on top of that, <clears throat> I've got like a, a young family. Yeah, I try and exercise every day. Um, and also the throughput of cases is huge. So at any given time, I probably typically am working on four or five cases at a time. So as soon as I finish one, I'm literally on to the next one. Like I will literally have a 10 minute coffee break and then I'll go on to the next one because if I don't do that then it bleeds into my sort of free time my evening time so the point I'm trying to make is I don't really have the time to sit and stew about the actions of any one individual because there's so much other work waiting for me so I think it's a combination of all of those things yeah I find that actually I'm quite desensitized to talking about pretty rough topics I can and it won't really affect me too much but I always attribute that to how as a kid, I was always reading my mum's Women's Weekly magazines. Chat, take a break, that's life. Because if you look at the front covers, it's like, oh, free holiday or holiday's 50p. And then it's, I brutally, my husband brutally murdered me and our 12 kids. Um, and I grew up like reading those three times a week, you know, yeah. <laughs> which I don't know if that was slightly damaging or not. Um, are you so quite do you think you're, well, let me ask you this if you don't mind. Go uh, do you think there's still some cases now that you, that you look at and it just kind of blows your mind? Or do you think you're almost fully desensitized not fully sometimes I'm taken aback by some things but it's hard it's definitely harder to shock me than the average person um I can't think of any examples that come to mind of stuff that does shock me but I feel like I've just read a lot of shit in my time <laughs> you know so it does take quite a bit to wow me I think if I if I sit there and really think about a scenario or a situation if I really think about a Epstein, for example, and what went on on the island and imagine how the victims would have felt, then, you know, I can have a bit more of an emotional reaction. But if I'm talking about it in a conversation with a friend or, you know, someone like you, it can be very calculated and very yeah. um, like logically driven rather than I don't think I show my emotions much. <laughs> I don't think I'm that much of an emotional person. 
which is good in, in the context of what you're doing, right? Because if you're making YouTube videos, you don't want to, you need to look at it logically. You need to kind of unpick all the relevant factors. If you're just so emotionally overwhelmed by it, then you're not going to make interesting, good content, are you? Yeah, and I'd rather get to the bottom of things than let the emotional side of me take over. Yeah. Are you quite conscious then in your private life of looking after your mental health so things don't bleed over or is it just easy for you? Um, I, I mentioned before that I'm really sort of naturally impatient, right? And I always yeah. have uh, very high expectations. And I do think that affects my mental health sometimes. It definitely does. Not like there all the time, but I'm never fully happy even before the media stuff even before uh any of my kind of public my trying to raise my social media profile i've, I've always had a background feeling of never feeling fully happy and it's always there most of the time i can ignore it and it's fine because i have you know a decent life i do i, I do interesting things i have friends i have a family so i am i, I do things that make me happy frequently mm-hmm. but inevitably there'll always be every couple of weeks a time where I kind of crash a little bit in my moods and it's not terrible. I don't, I, I don't want to kind of overreg it because I think that's disrespectful to people that really suffer from actual, you know, depression or anxiety. I don't think it's ever, ever been as bad as that, but I do think that my outlook negatively affects my mental health and I probably should do something about it, especially as a psychiatrist. But part of me is that I, part of it is that I'm too busy to actually really dedicate any decent time, for example, to do, I don't know, mindfulness or meditation. But to, if I'm being perfectly honest, part of me, is, part of it is because I don't want to change because the, the plus side of all of that is that I have this drive. So I'm always up for doing things. Mm. You know, I've got a very hard work ethic. And I think that's, that's the two sides of the same coin. So I'm worried that if I became happy and satisfied easily, then I wouldn't have the drive to do as much as I do. Does that make sense? So I'm, I'm intentionally kind of trying to ignore it to a degree, I think. As you are, as you've said, quite impatient, do you think that you could do meditation? Because I, I, can't, deal with, <laughs> I can't deal with meditation. I fall asleep. Uh, the answer is no. So my parents are quite religious. They're Hindus. They're quite spiritual. So oh, really? I, I used to, I grew up around meditation. They, they tried to get me to do it when I was a kid. And I was never interested. Couldn't uh, My mind just kind of constantly goes. So to, uh, to give you another perspective, I'm one of those people that just cannot relax. So I was in uh, Portugal with my wife and kids uh, just last week, actually. And it was fine. Like, I enjoyed it. I'm not saying I didn't enjoy it, but whatever was out on the beach. And after about half an hour, I was just like, this is actually a bit boring. I want to do something. I don't know what that thing yeah. is, but I want to do something. <laughs> so it's all connected. So yeah, I'm definitely somebody that cannot relax, which yeah, it's connected to everything else I'm saying. Oh, it's so funny because this episode, it's going to be about you, but the things you're saying. So recently, and I've mentioned this already on my channel a few times, recently I got diagnosed with ADHD. um, And the assessment that I did with the psychologist, psychiatrist, I think psychiatrist, um, a lot of of things are coming up the same, you know, like can't relax, always wanting to do something, always like on the go. And it's just quite funny because it's a bit reminiscent do you like that though would you let me phrase that another way would you prefer to be somebody who is always on the go and always distractible or would you prefer to be somebody who is just sort of happy and calm all the time I don't I don't know because I I feel the same as you like I don't think I'm ever fully happy Uh, I'm quite irritable I uh, it's very easy for me to get irritated I just look on Facebook and I get irritated and that can put me in a bad mood for an hour you know, so I don't really know what it would mean to be calm and happy. I only know really like this, 
mode of existence but it's quite difficult to be this way and try to be putting out content when you have like the little devils on your shoulder saying oh this isn't good enough or you're not getting the results that you want to see that's very relatable it is difficult with youtube and i feel like every person who does youtube has this wants to have this expectation of you know getting a video that gets a million views um but unfortunately it is hard to achieve that it's it's difficult to there's a there is a bit of a struggle with youtube so you're very valid in feeling (laughs) the way you do because i feel i feel the same i feel exactly the same with my main channel and podcast channel and stuff, you know? Um, But can we get on to some of your cases that you've had? What are, I don't want to say worst because I don't like that word, but maybe the most harrowing cases that you've had? Okay. Um, I've got two that immediately spring to mind. So do you want me to tell you really briefly about both and you pick one or do you want me to tell you about both of them? I have lots of time. You can <laughs> okay. you can take your time. I'm very right. I'm, I'm relaxed in this aspect. <laughs> okay, no worries. Okay, so I'll tell you about both of them then. So one that I've talked about quite extensively as a guest on other podcast shows and also on my own channel is a young girl who I will call Yasmin. That's not her real name. Uh, and I've written about in my book. And she, despite everything that I've just said about being quite emotionally detached, still to this day, this is one that kind of affects me a little bit. For a number of reasons that will, will become clear so she was when i saw her when i assessed her which i think was in 2012 or 13 i think she was an 18 year old schoolgirl, and she didn't have any history of violence at all no problems with mental health no antisocial behavior and then she became psychotic kind of out of the blue she didn't even have a family history of any mental illness so it's extremely unusual and she her behavior changed for a couple of weeks before the incident which i'll come to and she started acting a bit weirdly she was making strange comments she was for example telling off her family for watching smut on tv even though they were watching the same sitcom that they'd always watched she was listening to weird chanting music and wearing these really sort of loose kind of hippie-ish clothes uh, so she was something had changed but it wasn't didn't look particularly dangerous and just a bit of a trigger warning for your viewers. So what happened is she was babysitting her three-year-old nephew and she ended up killing him. So she smothered him with a pillow because she genuinely, I believe, had these delusions that she thought that he was, uh, he had these demons inside of him. And she thought that she needed to rid these demons. And she also believed that she could reincarnate him that evening when a full moon came. So she didn't try and hide what she did at all. Her mother came a few hours later. She told her mother, mother called the police, obviously she told the police and she was kind of shocked that other people weren't seeing things as she were uh, and and didn't like believe her that the the child would be alive by the end of the day. Then she was remanded to prison in Holloway prison, which is where I saw her uh, a few weeks later. And it was really hard to assess her because she was extremely guarded and evasive. She was superficially quite polite, but she was really passively aggressive and she wouldn't tell me about any of her thoughts. She wouldn't tell me about her version of events of what happened. Uh, And then I managed to convince the Ministry of Justice to transfer her to the medium secure female unit that I was working in at the time because I thought something was wrong. And I had a very short period of time. It's about six to eight weeks, maybe seven weeks before her her murder trial at the Old Bailey. And I basically had to give evidence about whether I thought she had a mental illness, which I did, because she let slip a couple of other really bizarre beliefs when she was on the ward. She was really, so for example, she asked me to to print out everything on the internet about reincarnation. And then when I asked her why, she kind of shut down and and became quite passively aggressive. Uh, And so the reason it stands out, obviously, number one is the, the shocking nature of what happened and the kind of tragedy of losing a child. Number two is the difficulty in assessing her when she was so closed. And also just the, the, enormity of the situation of giving 
evidence in a murder trial at the Old Bailey. So I've done that several times since then, but that was my first time. So I was just a middle grade doctor back then. I wasn't a consultant. Uh, and getting used to the aggressive tactics that barristers use to try and stumble you on the expert witness stand. They make you try and contradict yourself or they, mm. they draw incorrect inferences from what you're saying. But luckily I managed to get her a finding of not guilty by reason of insanity and a hospital order. And just to be crystal clear for your viewers, that means in the eyes of the law, she hasn't committed uh, an offence, so she's not guilty in the eyes of the law, but that doesn't mean that she's released. So she went back to the medium secure unit for long-term rehabilitation, was there for many years. And part of the first step was to medicate her. So that was to give her the antipsychotic medication to reduce those delusional beliefs. And it did work, but it took a really long period of time. So she had that belief for about 18 months. So for that whole time, she didn't think that she'd done anything wrong. And then gradually over time, her mental illness subsided because of the medication. And then reality came crashing in. So then she realized what she'd done. She realized that she ended her nephew's life. So as you'd expect, there was this whole wave of like devastation and depression, which we also have to treat through psychology and through medication. Uh, and also part of her rehabilitation was having her brother, who is the father of the child that died, reconnecting with her. So I would sit in a room while they had this family therapy on a weekly basis. And uh, as you'd expect, it was really emotional, lots of tears, uh, as everyone was trying to kind of understand and make sense of what had happened. So for all of those reasons, that case really sort of stands out to me. I have a lot of questions. <laughs> Firstly, so it, it just happened out of nowhere. She had no previous yeah. history of mental health issues, nor in the family. Why does psychosis happen? Is there, I'm, I'm sure there's no one single cause, mm -hmm. but for it to happen so randomly, have you any idea why? Uh, I, in her particular case, I'm afraid I don't know why it happened. I can say that in general, psychosis is multifactorial, as you said. So very often there's a family history. It's not like directly, it's not like an autosomal dominant gene. So if, if your father or mother has schizophrenia, for example, you don't automatically have it. But clusters of genes contribute. So the more people and the closer your relatives in your family that have a mental illness, a severe mental illness, the more likely you are to have it. So that's definitely one thing. Drug and alcohol use is an absolutely mm. huge, huge factor. But again, I don't think that was relevant in Yasmin's case. Uh, just general stress. So people that are in very stressful situations. There's some theories that, that, that maternal um, viruses can cause it. So if a woman is, has particular viruses when she's pregnant, there's a slight increase in the incidence of the offspring having uh, a psychosis. Um, and so it's a combination of all of those factors. I think in Yasmin's case, she was exceptional and she was very rare in that she didn't have almost all of those factors. And also just to go back to stress, it's things that I was talking about before. So everything from poverty to homelessness. So we know, for example, that people who live in cities have a slightly increased chance of developing something like schizophrenia versus people that live in the countryside. So yes, it's usually a combination of all of these factors. I can imagine that, the city stress thing, living in London for seven years. Yeah, wasn't great for mental health. Um, how often does, I, I guess technically, what was she going through? Was it more of a spiritual, like, like spiritual in quotations or religious element? Because I find that when you hear about these stories, mm. religious elements seem to crop up quite frequently, you know, like yeah. demons and angels and seeing things, voices of God um how often does that come about in psychosis and is it reasonable to hypothesize that certain figures in history who claim to have you know heard from god their mission on earth like joan of arc yeah is it reasonable to assume that maybe there's a bit of psychosis going on there 
so to answer your first question, I actually see religious delusions of some kind or another really quite frequently. Mm. So they're either paranoid delusions like um, like Yasmin had that there are demons. In case you or your viewers are interested, another very similar case that I've actually done a video about on my YouTube channel is Andrea Yates. So that's her real name. She is a woman who in 2001 smothered and killed all of her five kids. And she had very similar delusions to, to uh, Yasmin. She believed that they were possessed by demons and that if she didn't do that, they would, be, they would go to, uh, to hell. Uh, and she also had schizophrenia, also found not guilty by reason of sanity. So I just mentioned that case, it's so similar to Yasmin in many ways. Uh, and on the other hand, I also see grandiose delusions. So a lot of people believing that they're the reincarnation of Jesus or that they're blessed by God to have certain powers, whether it's they can fly or they can read minds. And I, over the years, I've come to realize that there's more religious delusions than there are religious people. So what I'm trying to say is that I think a lot of people absorb religion into their delusions. And I think Yasmin's a perfect example of that because she wasn't religious in any way before she, uh, before she ended up killing her nephew. And I've been thinking about what that is. My best theory is, is not, it's not the fault of religion in any way at all, but I think what happens is when you're in that mind state, when you're really paranoid and you disassociate with reality, you absorb what's around you. And because some elements of religion do kind of push a very scary image of hell and fire and brimstone and the devil and damnation that's something that's really easy to absorb mm. so just to give you another kind of slightly obtuse example i've seen a couple of people recently who've got delusions about coronavirus so i'm not talking about um i over exaggerated anxiety like actually they believe that they're part of it or they were the i saw one man who believed he he was the first case of coronavirus and he'd been spreading it around the world and felt really guilty zero. about this <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. He thought he was patient zero and felt, felt really guilty about this and almost tried to commit suicide. But my point is this, is that some people, when they become psychotic, they absorb anything that fits into the paranoid kind of mind frame and they believe it to be true. So, yeah, so I think that is why I see a, a really pronounced increased incidence of religiosity into the delusions that I see. And then to go to your other question, Lizzie, about the Joan of Arc. Yeah, I have, I've, I've never been asked that in an interview, but I definitely have thought about it. I think that people who in the past have had either visions or have heard voices in nowadays in our mindset, we call that um, psychosis. We call them auditory or visual hallucinations. So I think if I was around back then, I probably would have diagnosed them. I might have enforced treatment on them as well. You saying... The first, the first thing, it reminds me a bit of um, what's coming to mind is when some people have really severe OCD where they have to do a certain thing, otherwise they fear that something really, really bad is going to happen. Yeah. Is, is that just like an obsessive compulsion or is there a slight element of delusional behavior in it? Um, because it is really paranoid. I mean, I get very, I get super paranoid that bad things are going to happen all the time but you know when you have to engage in like an obsessive behavior otherwise you fear that well yeah. if I don't then something really bad's going to happen is there is there a slight link there uh yeah good question yes and no is what I'd say so the similarities between somebody with an OCD uh, disorder and somebody with a psychosis is that they have these beliefs that really drive them that most other people would say are, are incorrect right so somebody with OCD uh, might what they experience might be a version of reality, like they're worried about germs, and maybe many of us are worried about germs, but the difference is the next person wouldn't be worried to the degree that they would wash their hands, you know, until they bled raw. However, the big difference between OCD and delusions or any kind of psychosis is that OCD is 
ego dystonic, which means, which is a posh, we psychiatrists, we like to make, we like to sound clever in the <laughs> so we always overcomplicate uh, phrases. So ego dystonic means that the thoughts that you have are against what, how you would want to feel. So you feel dirty and you know that it's not logic, logical, but you still want to do something about it. And the thing that you do about it are the compulsions. So that's the, the rituals. Whereas psychosis is egosyntonic. So that means that you fully believe in what you're believing. So I'll be specific. So somebody who had OCD, let's take that same example. Somebody who had OCD about germs will not want these beliefs and will try and battle against those beliefs. Whereas somebody who had a psychotic disorder about germs, for example, like that coronavirus person, they fully 100% believe and they think that everybody else is wrong. Does that make sense? So OCD, even though you can't help it, you understand that your thoughts don't make sense. Whereas something like psychosis, where you're egosyntonic, you believe that you're only right and everyone else is wrong. What about some people who are really deeply entrenched in the throes of severe anorexia nervosa? You know, when it when it's at the point where um, they're underweight, but they can't. I've read a lot of books about uh, written by anorexics about their experience. There's one book by Maya Hornbacker that's really good because she delves into like the um, medical and like psychology point of view of it. But you know, when you're severely underweight, but you you aren't seeing that, and you think that you still need to, and that there's this drive and compulsion to keep going is that is that like a is there a link i don't know it's it's, it's an interesting it's an interesting check so i'm just getting all these ideas in my head yeah 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 no problem i can answer that so even though those two things that i talked about Mm. would encompass most mental illnesses there's a third smaller category and anorexia fits exactly into this so these are overvalued ideas as opposed to delusions so they're very similar in that you're very very invested in that particular false idea so an anorexic person typically will as you know you know not eat or starve themselves try and lose weight for it using other tactics and strategies um but they to on some level they know that what they can be convinced that what they're feeling is logically incorrect. That doesn't mean that they're suddenly cured, but they can be convinced. Whereas in a true delusion, unless you sort of medicate them with antipsychotics, they'll never lose those ideas. You can't argue wow. against a delusion. And you, you might think, what, what's the point of making the distinction and why does it really matter? And I suppose the point is this, is that you can treat delusions with antipsychotic medication. So not everybody always responds to them very well, but the vast majority of patients with a psychosis like schizophrenia, you give them enough medication, eventually it will uh, recover. Those ideas will go. But with an overvalued idea, antipsychotic medication or any medication doesn't help. So you can give somebody who's with anorexia, who's depressed, for example, antidepressants that might take the edge off the depression, but there's no medication that will change their core belief. So it's just like a, a smaller other category. To... To go on your earlier point about Yasmin, when someone, if someone commits a really severe crime under psychosis, they hurt or they even kill someone, how how can you come to terms with the guilt of you know what you've done once you've resolved the mental issue of psychosis? Because I, I just remember because um, Sean Atwood he came on my podcast recently and he yeah. told me this story about how this uh, this guy he was on a lot of crystal meth and he, he went into drug induced psychosis he saw that his child looked like a demon so he beheaded his own child wow. and you know I, I was kind of wondering when he said that well we both kind of wondered how how can you possibly live with yourself after you've yeah. come to ter- like after you've come back to reality yeah. how 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 do you do that. <laughs> 
So quickly, a big shout out to Sean. He's a good friend of mine. I've been on this channel many times. Um, I suppose it depends on a lot of factors, right? So it depends on the circumstances and it depends on the individual. So I, I, obviously I've not assessed this individual that he's talking about, but I would imagine that there must be an extra layer of guilt compared to somebody like Yasmin because obviously he didn't intend to become psychotic, but he voluntarily would have taken those drugs. Yeah. So he wouldn't have fully understood or foreseen the consequence of his actions, but nevertheless, his voluntary actions. And I imagine, again, I've not seen him, but you don't go, it's very unusual for somebody to go into drug, drug-induced psychosis unless they're a very heavy, regular drug user. Mm. Uh, so I imagine it must be an extra layer of guilt. And I think another factor is exactly how bad the offence was. So when you're talking about somebody who's beheaded their own son or my, my previous patient, Yasmin, who killed her own nephew, I mean, that's got to be up at the top end, right? There's not many more things you can think of doing that, that would make you be more horrified with yourself than that. But also, just to put it in perspective, other patients that I see, even though I, I talk about people that kill or murders quite frequently because it's the most interesting, the vast majority of patients I see don't actually do that. I'd say I've assessed probably going on to a thousand criminal cases and maybe five, probably about 5% of them actually in murder. The vast majority are, you know, stabbings, uh, assaults. So I think there's an, a decreased level of guilt when there's still a survivor, when the person actually survives and when they've not taken life. And some of the offences they do, I don't know how to put this in a nice way. I think the patients don't really care. Like it might've been assault against a police officer or against a member of a nursing staff. And from what I can tell, they don't really have any element of guilt. And that might sound like a harsh thing to say, but we're talking about some very damaged people who themselves, as we mentioned before, might have been sort of abused or in the care system for the whole of their lives and they just don't have a respect for authority. So I think it kind of depends on the situation, on the crime and on the person themselves. Uh, but I, th I think people do struggle with it. So Yasmin's a perfect example of that. She became really depressed afterwards. And if they're in hospital, which more often than, than not they are, if they were really unwell and if it's a serious crime, if they're in a forensic unit, then they have support. So they have catharsis of talking to other people. They have proper psychological input to help them deal with the guilt. And if necessary, they've got antidepressant medication. I don't think any of that completely overrules the emotions they feel, but it certainly helps to a degree. I'm just going to say it. I've been debating in my head whether to say this. They're not going to uh -oh. mind. Like one of my friends, he's not going to mind because we find this kind of stuff funny. Um, one of my friends, he would experiment with acid when he was younger. Yeah. And one time he experimented with acid and he came out of it feeling like he was the universe or Buddha reincarnated. And for weeks afterwards, he felt like so Zen. And he told me that he was just seeing signs everywhere. You know, if he saw like a, like an arrow in the road, he'd be like, right, I've got to follow that arrow. And then, you know, okay. synchronicity, things synced up. And we, we spoke about that at the time because it happened a few years ago. And we spoke about it recently. And he turned around to me and said, you know, like it was a good experience because I felt very at peace, but I believe what I was going through was a very mild form of drug induced psychosis. Would you say that? that that is what my <laughs> friends had. I think so. Yeah, that's what it sounds like to me, right? I mean, there's, there's a, a direct connection between them taking acid and feeling weird straight afterwards. So temporarily, there's a co connection. Uh, yeah, I mean, it sounds like it was a nice, pleasant experience for him. Yeah. So I don't think that's a problem. I think when people go the other way and do things like Sean Atwood's uh, friends, then it could be an issue. But yeah, that does sound like drug-induced psychosis. But as you say, it's mild because he wasn't climbing the walls or, um, you know, going absolutely haywire no he just thought that he was he was god and i was god and everything is god the universe experience itself subjectively bill hicks type stuff i think i think with acid it's, it's uh 
it's quite a potent and dangerous thing to to play with isn't it because it sounds like your, your friend had a great experience but I've certainly spoken to people that just get really really paranoid and have like the most horrific time I imagine it's probably to do with your mindset at the time that you took it so if you're fully relaxed and at peace and maybe you've got a bit of a, a hippie vibe then you're going to have a great time but if you've got some hidden buried fears then they're probably going to come out yeah I've personally never taken um straight hallucinogens I mean shrooms LSD ayahuasca DMT I've never done that because quite frankly I've never been allowed uh, when I was, I, when I'm, I, I'm a qualified doctor so I'm not going to answer that question on air but uh yeah make of that what you will <laughs> no I, I've never taken that stuff because I know that there's some things in my head and I don't want to be out of control for 10 hours and have like these bad things come to the forefront because I've had I've had bad experiences on average drugs so I would certainly never go down the hallucinogenic route I guess my next question is how can you tell when someone is experiencing psychosis in comparison to someone just doing a crime or a murder because they want to? Is it quite easy to tell? Yeah, it is. So uh, I think what, what you're asking basically is about people that feign mental illness, right? So they try and try and get off their charges or try and get like a hospital order rather than a prison sentence. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I see this probably on average about once every two or three months, I'll get a defendant who's either completely fabricating or trying to feign or exaggerate mental illness. And it's really easy to tell Elise, and I'll explain you why. I'll explain why. It's because, firstly, because I don't just take them at face value. So I look at all of the evidence, as I was mentioning before, like witness statements, CCTV footage, and also the police interviews and the transcripts. So if somebody tells me that they were really paranoid and they were hearing voices, but none of that evidence shows that. And remember, the police interviews often when they get arrested, so it's very often the same day as the offence or maybe the day after. And if they were completely interacting absolutely 100% normally, then I'm going to be very suspicious. The other thing is that I look at the past history. So I look at psychiatric notes, GP records, and Yasmin would be a perfect example of a case where it kind of came out really quickly out of the blue, but that's exceptionally rare. You know, that is like less than 90, less than 5% of my cases, 95% of the time they've had, when they have been genuinely psychotic, there's been a buildup over time. So either they've been sectioned previously to hospital or they're on medication, or even if you speak to their family members, you can see that there's some sort of change in their overall level of functioning. So if none of that happens, but they're claiming to have been psychotic, then again, uh, it's, it's not it's not 100% conclusive, but my kind of bullshit radar is on high alert. And then finally, I'd say, and probably the, the most interesting for me and the most entertaining for me is that people who try and fake it are just terrible actors. Uh, I think mostly they get depictions off like films uh, mm. and TV and <laughs> they kind of, they just turn to these like dribbling, shuffling zombies and they kind of shout about bats in the corner of the room. And when you think about it, if you were genuinely psychotic, like say you were actually hearing voices or you're paranoid about people, about strangers, paranoid being watched or poisoned, for example, which is very common in people that I see that are genuinely unwell. And if some smarmy guy in a, in a suit like me turns up and you never, I've never met you before, you're not going to disclose that information. So when it's genuine, I have to really try hard to elicit it by asking all the right questions and sort of reacting appropriately. Whereas somebody who's trying to force it tells me within minutes, within a, two minutes of meeting me, they tell me they're hearing voices, they're paranoid. If you're truly paranoid, you don't tell people you're paranoid. Uh, so it's quite entertaining to watch them. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a giveaway. They're not very good at faking it. So there's never been a case of someone who is sound of mind um, dropping hints beforehand, like do, doing a build-up to doing the crime, you know, maybe mentioning to a friend or, you know, like delusional. There's no one that's been that thorough 
no one that's that's been that good of an actor because I mean not that I'm going to do a crime but I like to I like to think about things a lot and I think if I was going to do that I would certainly be like to my partner oh I saw an angel the other day in the months before in the lead up to I don't know robbing somewhere if you are going to do a crime definitely don't talk about it uh, on your podcast um, I not that I know of not that I know of. and also remember if you're a bit like Yasmin if you're mentally unwell that doesn't mean that you uh, th- that's it that you get released you will especially if it's a serious crime you'll end up in a psychiatric unit mm. and there's no uh, finite sentence for the admission so you are discharged if and when you're ready so there's been many many cases that I've worked on where the person because they've got quite a severe illness has ended up in hospital longer than the, the equivalent prison sentence if they went to prison so I don't think necessarily people know this perpetrators offenders know this but it, it's often a harder ride to go down the hospital route than it is the prison route Ah, interesting. And how would you how do you deal with patients who are really difficult? You know, they're they're closed off, like Yasmin being passive aggressive and not wanting to open up. How how do you how do you deal with someone when they are of that? When they're they're so paranoid, they're not going to give you information. Yeah. So there's there's kind of two different contexts. One would be when I'm doing the one-off assessment for my court report, for my assessment. And there's definitely, even in the recent few months, there's been a few people that would just pretty much refuse to talk to me or will be so evasive that they won't give me anything solid. And the best I can do is get as much uh, objective evidence as I can. So to be specific, if there's somebody who I'm seeing in a prison who is refusing to answer any of my questions, but then I speak to the prison officers or I speak to the prison psychiatrist, and they say, look, we've reviewed Mr. X and there's absolutely no problems. He's interacting well with staff. He's, uh, you know, turning up for mealtimes. He's got a, a job in the prison. You know, there's cleaning jobs in the prison. He's going to the gym, blah, blah, blah. Then I can c- conclude on balance that actually they're probably not paranoid. They're probably just refusing to engage for whatever reason. Whereas somebody who is really disturbed in the prison, so they're barely leaving their cells. They've probably already been reviewed by the mental health team. They might even already be on medication those things would indicate to me that there is actual genuine sort of paranoia there. So to answer your question, the best that I can do in that situation is right in my evidence in my court report. I couldn't engage him for these reasons, but using objective evidence, this is on balance what my theory is. Mm -hmm. And then the other aspect is the long-term rehabilitation. So for that's for people that have already been through that process that end up in the secure units where I've worked. Uh, And it's really hard. It is a struggle sometimes. I mean, medication helps, but medication is very, very slow. So I said before, Yasmin, it took a year and a half before we medicated her effectively. It doesn't usually take that long, but it can take months. Um, but it's also about building a relationship with them. So you can't be asking them personal questions about the crime they committed on the first one or two meetings. You have to just sit with them on the ward, spend some time with them, talk about any other issues they have, um, build a bit of trust, build a bit of rapport. And sometimes it takes months to actually get through past that sort of psychic barrier. Hmm. <clears throat> if I was someone like a doctor... I would constantly be worrying about all the ways that my body can break or just, you know, not like stop working or all the illnesses that I could catch. When you're a psychiatrist and you know of all these various ways that the human brain can quickly change and how easily it can affect people's behavior and their whole personalities, does it not make you a bit wary of everyone? Because when when I'm when I'm like going outside, anytime that I I make it sound like I'm a hermit or a recluse. I go outside every day. Every time I do, I'm always wary of people because I'm always thinking any one of you could just snap. And, you know, like I don't like going on the tube because I'm always thinking someone could come on with a machete. And to my credit, that did happen. Someone came onto the tube with a machete. I wasn't there. I saw it in the news recently. This guy recently, um, he got like convicted in his trial 
There's how, a CCTV. Recent, how recent was this? So it happened about a year ago, and I think on the Jubilee okay. line, but he only recently got okay. convicted of some of something because it, it took a long time. And they released the CCTV footage of him just yeah. like bringing out a machete, and he didn't know anyone on the. It wasn't he wasn't attacking people with like a, an intent of I know you and I revenge or anything like that. Yeah. It was so random. Paranoia, yeah. And I'm always worried about these types of things going on. Do, are you not more wary of people because you know? Like a hundred times more than me about the human brain. Or... <laughs> um, uh, the reason I asked you when this happened was actually by a weird coincidence. I've actually assessed somebody with exactly that presentation. So I assessed a man, but it was a, it was a, a long time ago. It's probably about four or five years ago. So I don't think it's the same case, but a man who attacked somebody. I don't think it was a tube. It was on a train, but it was in London with a machete, random people. Uh, and again, it was all about these paranoid delusions. So he thought that people that looked at him in a certain way were these undercover assassins that had been sent to kill him. Um, so he ended up slashing somebody quite seriously across the calf muscle with a machete and kind of basically split their leg in two. Um, so despite what I've just said, <laughs> I don't really find myself worrying about it. I think, I'm sure we all in our everyday lives, especially in London, you see people that clearly are mentally unwell, right? Like yeah. we see uh, people sort of muttering to themselves or that maybe might be homeless or, or look as if they've got very, very severe social problems. So I suppose I'm a little bit wary that I give them a wide berth. Like I don't mm. want to be um, completely unempathetic. I do give money to homeless people sometimes, but people that, that seem a little bit off, especially when I'm out with my kids, I will definitely avoid those people. But I don't think I avoid people in general. Um, yeah, because I suppose I know that what I see is very, very rare. So it doesn't really uh. make me worry about society in general well I, when i was saying that i was thinking something a bit sort of random but i went to new york um i think it was year before last and i was amazed absolutely blown away by the number of people like that on the street right so if you're walking through say central london you might see maybe one uh, stretch two on an average day people mm -hmm. that uh, look mentally unwell that look like they might be responding to voices muttering to themselves or you know just just interacting with the environment in a very strange way or, or making strange movements in New York, I was, there was literally somebody like that in central, in central, central New York on pretty much every other street corner. Like I, I could, I could spend a day out in New York and see maybe like 20 people like that. And I was just kind of just shocked to be honest with you. Why do you reckon that is? Do you think it's maybe to do with the American healthcare system and how it's not accessible for everyone, especially if they come from lower income backgrounds? Yeah, I think you hit the nail right in the head. I think it's exactly that. Yeah. I should be an auctioneer. I said that well fast. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, speaking of, because you mentioned briefly about coronavirus and someone thinking that they were patient zero, was there an increase in psychotic delusions due to the pandemic over the course of the last two years? Um, because, you know, when people have delusions of it's going to be the end of the world, I would have thought that there would be more of that because because remember at the beginning of the pandemic where it was very much being positioned as this could be the end of the world as we know it yeah. um was there a knock-on effect did you see more people having delusions to do with it's the end of the world hmm. good question um no i don't well I, I don't think there was an increase in number of people that suffered with delusions i think the baseline uh was roughly the same so it's still something that's very rare uh, and i think had those had the coronavirus not occurred those same people that became mentally unwell would have become mentally unwell and they would have found something else to be preoccupied with something else that would have bled into their delusional system mm. religion we mentioned earlier however i do think the access to be treated had plummeted 
So because of the coronavirus restrictions, people were physically unable, like mental health staff, nurses, for example, were physically unable to go into prisons or community mental health clinics. And the knock-on effect of that was that less people were seen who needed their medication, who needed like a regular depot injection. So I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't think the number of people increased, but the intensity of the people that were already unwell definitely increased. So I saw loads of people and we're still dealing with the aftermath of that now, people that didn't have decent treatment. So instead of seeing the psychiatrist on a monthly basis, they saw them on a you know, four or five monthly basis because services were so overstretched. Yeah. Mm. And speaking of prison, so I would from an uneducated background i'd say just analyzing alone i'd say a lot of people in prison are suffering with their mental health do prisons in this country try to rehabilitate prisoners try to give them mental health support or do they just decline and maybe become more likely to reoffend once they're out because they've not got the support that they've needed yeah, you know i do i'm just making some notes so i don't forget to say <laughs> um yeah so I think it's very, very, even as a forensic psychiatrist and even someone that works in prisons, I think I cannot deny that the healthcare system, the mental health care system in prison is massively overstretched and massively underfunded. So you probably know this, but in general, outside of prisons, the proportion of funding that goes to mental health services, something like 18%. Uh, is much lower than the burden that psychiatry, psychiatric illnesses has in the NHS as a whole. And it's even less so in prison, I think, because politically prison is a, is a less acceptable and less sexier way to spend your money when you've already got um, so many services that need more funding. And the upshot of that means that people, people that go to prison who have pretty urgent psychiatric needs get seen much, much later. That's why I regularly work with the courts that I work in, we regularly contact people in Wormwood Scrubs. That's one of the feeder prisons. And I know the psychiatrists there, they're excellent. They do, they, they take the job very seriously, but they're constantly overburdened with work to the point that if I refer somebody and I say, this man is like properly psychotic and needs to be seen as soon as possible, at best, they will see them in four weeks just because they've got so many people lined up. So that's one problem, actually, the speed of getting to see people. Once they get seen, then generally stuff like medication can be sorted out quite well. And in fact, Slightly paradoxically, sometimes people in prison get better uh, mental health care treatment after they've been assessed because on the outside, they've got really chaotic lives. Some of them, you know, are off on drug binges for days at a time so they don't come in and take their medication or the drugs make them worse. Whereas in prison, there is at least some stability. So getting assessed is an absolute ball ache and it takes a long time. Once they're assessed, then most people get a decent level of, of healthcare treatment in the prison with the exception of people who are really mentally unwell. So one massive disadvantage of providing healthcare in prison is that you can't use the Mental Health Act. So you can't enforce medication to people who don't have insight with people like schizophrenia, for example, you can't inject them with, with antipsychotic medication. So the next best thing you can do is get them into one of these medium secure units. And unfortunately, the waiting lists are cripplingly long. So I've seen people who've been completely psychotic, screaming the place down, literally spreading feces on, across the wall, dirty protests, absolutely tortured by hearing voices who wait, who've waited for like three or four months just to get into one of these units. So that's another massive hurdle. And when I worked as a prison psychiatrist, it was such hard work to try and get them into these hospitals because they're so overburdened. They're always trying to bat, bat away patients. And it's all this like geographical kind of game of cat and mouse. So every geographical service wants to push the responsibility to any individual to another service. <clears throat> so 
depending on which which area it is, either where your GP is registered is, where your GP is registered, where you were born, the place of your last address, or the place of where the offence took place, could all be used as reasons for, for one geographical area to say, they're not our problem, try somebody else. So it's really frustrating as a psychiatrist trying to actually find the place to send them to in the first place. Uh, so all of these things in combination, I think, has overall is pretty, provides pretty poor healthcare to people. But I think, Going back to what you're saying about rehabilitation, another issue is the social element. So I used to work in a female prison and the number of women that would come in homeless and still not get their, their housing sorted out by the time they left was shockingly high. And part of the slightly ironic problem was that those with longer prison sentences had much more of a chance of having their social issues sorted out, like having housing and having a social worker, a named social worker sorted out when they left. Whereas people that came in with short prison sentences, say six weeks for like stealing or burglary, uh, wouldn't have the type the, the system so slow that it wasn't even worth starting because by the time any of that was sorted out, they'd be released. So they got almost no help or no rehabilitation. Why is there no Mental Health Act in prisons? Why, why can't you force medication? I think mainly because if something goes wrong, which is actually pretty rare, but if somebody was to have like an allergic reaction to a medication, they needed emergency help in a psychiatric unit, you could, you could sort that out within half an hour. Was in a prison, it's, it's just the actual process of getting the ambulance in, getting the prisoner out and trying to stop all the other prisoners escaping is a lot more clunky and slower. So there's a risk that if something went wrong, somebody could die in prison, whereas they probably, their life would be saved on balance if something like allergic reaction uh, wouldn't happen in the community. Okay. Have you ever been attacked at work? <laughs> Do you know the answer to that? Yes, but my audience <laughs> That was a leading question, yeah. Um, yes, I have. So I was actually punched on in the face my very first day on a forensic psychiatric unit. Now, I do want to make the point, and I, sh I probably should have mentioned this before, that I don't want to add to the stigma that people with mental illnesses are dangerous because the vast majority of the time they're not. It just happens to be the ones that I see who are in the, the prison system, in the uh, criminal justice system, are dangerous. But despite what I've just said, I'm going to shatter that, uh, add to that stigma and shatter, shatter the reality by saying that, yeah, the first time, so I was basically showing, I was trying to, I started a placement as a very junior doctor in a psychiatric unit, a forensic psychiatric unit in London. And I was basically trying to show off to my consultant. So I came in early on that particular day and I, I was going to interview some of the patients on our team so that when we had the ward round later on, I could sort of say that I've spoken to this, this, and this, and this is my opinion. Um, so I went onto the ward really, really early in the morning, like seven or eight, and I started interviewing these patients and there was one patient who didn't even know me. So he wasn't on my caseload. We'd never spoken before. And I didn't even interview him. I was interviewing someone else and he seemed somewhat preoccupied with me. So he kept like looking at me through the window. He sort of followed me around when I was interviewing another patient, he would open the door and put his head around and just ask these questions. And they weren't aggressive questions, but they were just very weird and weird statements. So for example, he kept asking me if we went to the same school kept asking me if I knew such and such and he kept telling me about a cricket game that we played together none of which made any sense to me and then he would make weird statements like um about religion so he'd say something like we there we're all gods but there can only be a god of a god and I was just like I don't know what you're talking about mate leave me alone um sort of bumbled him out in the room and then basically I came out of the interview room and then he ran up behind me and, and punched me really hard on the back of the head 
I didn't see it happening. I had no awareness of it, the fact it was going to happen. And I think I must have lost consciousness maybe for a second or two because I don't remember any of that. I just remember waking up on the floor, just being quite disorientated. Mm. And then he ran off. So I didn't even see who did it. But some of the nursing staff did. So they kind of you know, chased him. Usually they, they would medicate somebody like that, or put them in the seclusion room, but he calmed down immediately. So there wasn't really any, any rationale to do that. Um, and I found out later that he had schizoaffective disorder. So he suffered from something really specific called a Capgras uh, syndrome. So that's when he genuinely believed that I was someone else from his past, this old school bully in disguise ah. in his delusional mind. Uh, I didn't take it personally because he was clearly mentally unwell. And also I have to say, I, I don't want to be sort of flippant or make light of this scenario because mental health staff do sometimes get assaulted, especially in forensic units. And it can be very uh, debilitating and damaging. But to me, it wasn't such a big deal. I think because I didn't feel the threat, so there was no sense of danger. It, it literally just happened. And then it was over before I even realized it happened. Um, mm. But it was more embarrassing. That's how I felt about it. I felt embarrassed because I was one of a new batch of junior doctors and everyone, patients and staff, basically knew me as the guy that got punched on his first day. So I was literally called that by the patients for the first week or two before they learned my name. Like, you're not the doctor that got punched. So the whole thing was more embarrassing than anything else. Like you got hazed. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, let's get on to Broadmoor. You worked at Broadmoor. How was that? How long did you work there? What so was I it have, like? Yeah, I have to say that I only worked in Broadmoor for a short period of time. So mm. it was uh, on a weekly basis. So I was ba I was based in a medium security unit. That's where I did my, most of my day job. And then one of the advantages of being a, for a forensic psychiatry trainee is you get one day a week to do anything that you want as a special interest, as long as it's broadly related to, to forensics. Uh, so I chose to do one day a week in Boardmore. So I was there for about seven or eight months, one day a week. Um, I have to say it was nothing like I expected it to be. So coming from a medium secure unit, I was kind of used to that atmosphere and it's quite chaotic in medium security because all the patients are encouraged to be out of their room all the time. Mm. There's loads of different rehab and activity games, uh, activities going on from pool tables to new, newspaper clubs. There's just like a, a frenetic kind of energy on the ward. There's sometimes violence and danger, as you'd expect, uh, but not always. And Broadmoor felt eerily quiet, actually. So the, the place is huge. Uh, it's actually changed location since then. So there's a new Broadmoor as of a couple of years ago. Uh, but back then it was the old Victorian buildings that you and your viewers have probably seen on, on TV. Uh, and you, you have this like airport style security when you go in. So there's a big queue. And the level of security is hugely ramped up as you'd expect in a high secure unit. So the CCTV cameras, massive gates, massive doors. But once you're in the wards, they're really quiet. So I worked in one of the high intensive care wards, which means the patients were at the top end of the scale. So because of that, they're actually kept in their cells on long-term seclusion for most of the day, which is unlike most secure units. And they were only let out for like an hour at a time. And what, what I found really odd was that there's like a list of patients that had previous beefs or fights with each other. So you knew you couldn't let out this man at the same time as this man, because they'd probably attack each other or fight each other. And there was a really high level of staff to patient ratio. So you'd have like two staff members with all the patients at all times because they were so potentially volatile. So because of all of that, it actually felt quite quiet and it felt quite mm. placid and quite peaceful. There wasn't like this din of activity that there was. So that's what it was like. It was, it was, I, I did see some bursts of violence, but not that often actually, less often than a medium secure. So I probably only saw it once, maybe twice in the whole time that I was there. And it was immediately jumped on by the nursing staff and the, and the patients were immediately secluded. So it just sort of finished really quickly. So yeah, it was calm and eerie. 
I was going to say, did you not find it creepy at being so quiet and old Victorian buildings? Um, you know, those types of places I wouldn't want to walk around at night time. You know, I'd find it creepy. Did you not yeah. find it creepy? Um, did I find it creepy? No, not creepy. I just found it quite grand. It's like being in a castle. I suppose at night time. You don't find old castles creepy. <laughs> uh, I've never, no, I don't think I do. I don't think I've ever been to one at night. Yeah, so what about all the maybe. ghosts that are there? <laughs> <laughs> I ignore the ghosts. Yeah, I find that kind of stuff creepy. Let's get on to Jimmy Savile. Okay. I've got quite a, quite a lot about Jimmy Savile, I guess, because, you know, the documentary came out about him recently and it's been in the news again and that type of thing. Yeah. I guess let's start with how did he get away with his crimes? He had a lifetime of criminality behind yeah. him. Yeah, yeah. How did he possibly get away with it? So I think there's a number of things that are really unique about Jimmy Samuel. There's some stuff about his personality, which we can talk about later if you want. But in terms of how he got away with it, I think he was much more crafty and clever than he came across. I think he was really good at manipulating his position, his celebrity and his situation so he can continue getting new victims. So to be specific, Jimmy Savile created this image of being a philanthropist. So he was constantly off doing different charity work. But I actually think that this was a way of him hiding his abuse. So he had a really good reason to go to places where there were vulnerable victims like Broadmoor, mm -hmm. like hospitals, like various charity events, <clears throat> even Top of the Pops, not to do with his, his charity work, but to do with his, his uh, DJ work. So he had all these environments that he could pop into for a couple of hours, maybe a day or two at a time, and then leave legitimately. So this meant that he could just prey on the whole range of victims over a long period of time. So I think that's one part of it. Another part of it, I think, is that he was actually very good at hiding in plain sight, which comes back to why I think he was actually more deceitful and, I don't know if clever is the right word, but cunning, let's say cunning, than people mm. give him credit for, <clears throat> which is that he portrayed such a weird image, right? So everything from his clothes to his hair, to the chains, to the tracksuits, to the catchphrases. And I think that helped him hide in plain sight to a degree because he was so weird, because he was so bizarre, he could do strange things and people would just say, oh, that's Jimmy. So, you know, even in interviews, he kind of made very odd comments as if, you know, giving us little clues about what he's doing. And he certainly openly flirted with women in a very creepy way, but because everything about him was creepy, it disguised his behavior. And finally, I think another huge factor that can't be overlooked, Elise, is that he ingratiated himself with so many really powerful people. So, you know, he was mates with the royal family or friends with mm. certain members of the royal family. He was quite close to a number of very high profile uh, police officers, including in the Yorkshire Constabulary. He'd meet with them on a weekly basis. Uh, he, was, he managed to get himself in with the upper management of these hospitals, including Broadmoor. So I think the very fact that he had such powerful friends, first of all, it emboldened him. So he, over time, must have felt that he was invincible, getting away with all this abuse and almost never being caught. And on the odd occasion that people did try and call him up on it, it just got quashed. Uh, and, and the BBC as well, right? He was so he was in with the top wigs there, and also I think it would have massively put off any victims wanting to make any com uh, any complaints about him. So, <clears throat> especially when we take this in the context of the of the seventies, where this kind of behaviour was, <clears throat> I wouldn't say acceptable, but certainly uh, ignored, brushed under the carpet, yeah, uh, quashed compared to to nowadays. Um, so I think that would have ma already make it really hard for his victims to come out, but you know, it's almost impossible to believe you're going to have a positive outcome if you're going against somebody who's literally friends with 
you know, Prince Charles, like nobody would have, even the bravest person that he would have the confidence to go and do that. So I think it's a combination of all of those factors. Like it's like a melting pot of all the wrong ingredients that helped him get away with it. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack. So firstly, let's go for why was he given access to Broadmoor? Because he was, sure, he was a DJ, he was an entertainer, he was friends with the royal family, but ultimately he was just a bloke with no, I don't think he had any medical education. So why was he given access to Broadmoor? And and as you worked there way after Savile was there, was there ever any discussion amongst colleagues about the fact that he was once given access to Broadmoor? Did Broadmoor get... I don't want to use childish terms, but did Broadmoor get into a little bit of heat for it? For, for you know, in retrospect, why yeah. did you give Jimmy Savile access to, you know, it's quite, it's quite bizarre. So yeah, bizarre. what went on there? And um, I honestly, I have thought about this. I've made a video about Jimmy Savile. It's actually the most viewed video on my channel. So I've, thought, I've certainly thought about this and I've been asked about this in other podcasts. I cannot answer to, to I cannot in my mind, fathom why or how he was given keys to Broadmoor. Like, it just doesn't it's make sense bizarre. to me. It's bizarre. It's actually it almost, really it's bizarre. almost, I'm smiling just because it's kind of laughable because it's like, he was literally just a DJ. Yeah. Why, yeah, yeah. why was he going into, you know, or Duncroft, the private school, forgot why? Yeah. So what I can tell you is that Broad, I, I don't really know what it's like in the 70s, but now the level of security I've already talked about, nobody goes there without a purpose. So even if a workman who's working like on some building in Broadmoor or an inspector or a politician or, you know, health minister that comes in, they can't just rock up. It's like a prison. You can't just rock up. Everything is pre-planned. You need your ID, you need your fingerprint scanned, you need your photo taken. It's like prison levels of security basically to get in and out. So to me, there's not even a reason for him to be there. So that's mind blowing for a start, that there's no clinical reason he's not providing a service. So that in itself seems really weird. And apparently he had his own keys and he was allowed to move around. So even those people that I mentioned would all need to be escorted like all the time. Nobody's, uh, no outsider is allowed to, to roam around. For a start, you couldn't because you don't have your, you wouldn't have your own keys. So you'd need some a member of staff to actually let you get into places. But, um, but only members of staff can have their own keys. So I'm afraid I can't answer your question. I, I mean, I think it's just because he was such a personality and so well known that people just kind of let him do whatever he wants. And they, I mean, assuming that the upper management board didn't know about the abuse, which I presume to be true, they probably just saw it as good publicity for Broadmoor to have one of the, we have to remember this was, he was possibly the most famous person in the UK at the time. Mm. I think maybe some of that's lost looking at it in 2022 because so he's become a celebrity and there's so there's so many more famous people now but back then with only like three or four tv channels and him being the most popular person on the most popular show on tv no internet no youtube he really was like ultra 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 famous he's kind of what's the equivalent nowadays who's the most famous person in the world kanye kim kardashian i don't know Uh, i'd say yeah kanye or kim he's like the equivalent of that uh so i think people just wanted to be around him just because not because they necessarily liked him as a person, but just because of his sort of celebrity status. Um, so I, uh, even though that's not a full answer, that's the only thing I could think of that would explain why people would let him in. Is Broadmoor a, a bit ignorant here. Is it a mixed sex prison or is it not prison? Is it a mixed sex uh, center hospital? Hospital. Yeah. Uh, is it mixed sex or is it just male? It's female? not now. It's not now, but it was back then. So it actually okay. oddly started off, 
as, uh, with only female uh, patients. And it was only female patients who had killed their own children. So it was really specific. And that was in 1863, I believe, when it was opened. And then over time, they had men coming in and then obviously more men commit violence. So it got kind of, uh, the men outnumbered the women and then they stopped women being there. I can't remember the exact year. It was fairly recent. I'm guessing in the 90s, I think. They just stopped women going there and moving them over to another institution. So was Savile going to Broadmoor to find victims? Because these these people are in this hospital for reasons. They're, They're mentally unwell. Wouldn't that be quite if he was if he was trying to find victims via Broadmoor, wouldn't that be quite dangerous on his part? Because, you know, there could be like they might be more likely to act in violence or I don't know. It seems like a strange I would just hypothesizing here, but it seems like a strange decision. It's a good hypothesis. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's a good point, actually. I, I think, I mean, his, his, um, the scope of his abuse was, the scope of it, sorry, it's my cleaner, uh, the scope of his abuse was so wide reaching. It involved so many people that I don't really think he cared. Like, mm. I don't think he even, I don't even have to put this into words, I think he abused so many people on a regular basis, an almost daily basis, as far as we know, that it was just one of many. I don't think he even thought about it that much. And Broadmoor, it does have this mystique about it. So it kind of adds to his celebrity. So I suppose the point I'm trying to make is I don't think he necessarily thought it through. I think he just wanted to abuse as many people in as many situations as he could. Plus being broad, in Broadmoor is a pretty cool place to be in because it's, it's, it, cause it's so sort of well-known. So it adds to his celebrity status. I think the people that he, because you you're right, everybody has committed a degree of violence to get into Broadmoor, quite severe level of violence. But some people still can be quite vulnerable. So mm. um, somebody, for example, a female who's killed their, their child in psychosis, but is quite heavily medicated, for example, would be an example of somebody who um, would, be, would have got into Baltimore, but it isn't actually necessarily that violent or even able to defend themselves. And crucially, probably won't be believed if they made any complaints. Yeah, no one would believe them, especially if they've had bouts of psychosis before. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Would you say that Savile non-sexually groomed everyone around him? And what would non-sexual grooming look like? Yeah. So the weird thing about Savile compared to most um, sex offenders is he didn't groom individual victims. So grooming, just you might know this, but just very briefly for your viewers, grooming people is when you gain their confidence, basically. So for your average um, sex offenders say against the child they will be around that child for a while they will ingratiate themselves with their parents um, they'll make the child feel comfortable around them in a non-sexual manner first uh, and then break boundaries by you know touching hugging and then eventually it will lead to to sexual abuse jimmy Savile didn't do that actually uh, for most of the time he just kind of pounced he used the celebrity in the situation and kind of blindsided i would say the victims um, and int- just I'm going to a side point here, but it's, I think it's just really unique about his case is that his victims were mostly young females, but not exclusively. So he sexually assaulted both genders and a whole wide range of people from different ages. And there's even rumours, unsubstantiated, I should add, that he um, abused corpses as well. So the reason I'm mentioning all that is to me, that's not just about sexual gratification. It's about power. It's about being able to have control of anybody that he wanted at any time. Um, I've lost my train of thought. Did you ask a question before? 
about grooming uh, sorry, sorry sorry yes yes I, I, non, I, non-sexual grooming what would, what would that look like but it's funny that you say that because the next one that i've written is i heard you say i've heard you say that savile sexual abuse was more for control and power over women children or the vulnerable rather than lust mm. um and i've heard the necrophilia claims as well but yeah I mean, david I, I, david ike was the one who said that in the 90s in the 90s he was saying <laughs> that i'm just i'm just saying <laughs> Um, I, I, I'm not saying there wasn't any sexuality behind it, and I'm sure there was lust, but logically people tend to have a type, don't they? You know, people mm. are sexually attracted to one type, whether that's gender, maybe age, maybe look, I don't know, but one type of person. And the very fact that he did it almost every opportunity he got makes it feel that it's more than just lust. That's what I think. Yeah, because my next question is, would someone like Savile ever actually have do you think someone like Savile could have sex in a normal way as in for pleasure and mutual enjoyment not as part of an abusive power dynamic or do you think there was just no part of his brain and people like him who who can do that where it's going to be mutually beneficial for someone else maybe is it always going to be about the power you exert over someone this is what I mean by I'm just interested in the darker side of the psyche yeah. thinking of questions like that yeah, yeah, yeah. could yeah, no, a have ever had sex in a, in a normal functional way yeah that's a very good question um i'm happy to answer that i'm afraid i'm gonna have to end fairly soon after that if you don't mind at least just have yes, another, another meeting coming up um but yeah good question i th- i mean I, obviously i've not assessed him in person right but from what i know about him if i was to speculate i think he probably could as in he was physically able to, but I don't think he would have wanted to. I don't think mm. there's any reason for him to because he must get this perverse pleasure from all the abuse that he committed because otherwise why do you keep doing it over and over again? And the other thing that I find quite interesting is that he's never had any normal healthy relationships that we know of, romantic relationships or even flings. I mean, I suppose the counter argument to that is this in the 70s and there wasn't like this kind of kiss and tell culture and maybe people were a bit more reserved then. So I guess what I'm trying to say is maybe he did have those relationships, but people don't know about them. But I think probably on balance, it's more likely that he wasn't interested in those kind of relationships because he never had even short term girlfriends. And he was, as we said before, one of the most famous people in England. So um, you'd imagine that he, if he wanted to, he could have normal, healthy relationships, even if they were short-term relationships or flings, but he didn't. Mm. So to me, that means that he purposely, intentionally chose not to have normal, healthy sex. He, he intentionally chose to have, to use his dominance and power and control and basically was a predator. I think he, he got off being a predator because if not, then surely he would have some other experiences, right? Yeah. Before we finish, would you like to promote your channel, your books, your socials, etc.? <laughs> um, not that I was prepared or anything, but uh, yeah. So I've released a book called Into Minds. I think it's a good book, but obviously I'm biased. I would say that I rewrote it about six times till I thought it was ready. Uh, so it's like my um, professional memoir. So it's about my journey of becoming a forensic psychiatrist. I talk about some of my most interesting cases, like I did, and um, about. Yasmin, but it's a bit more detailed. So I go into mm. more of the kind of science behind it all, the rehabilitation. And it's slightly autobiographical as well. So it's kind of chronological. It tells me about my, my journey of becoming a forensic psychiatrist and how the individual shapes uh, cases shaped me. So that's available on Amazon. It's also available on Audible for those who are too lazy to read. Um, and I have got a YouTube channel. So it's called A Psych for Sore Minds. And it is 
it's, it's about the same kind of thing. So it's about mm. the crossover between mental illness and offending, but I think it's a bit more surreal, silly, lighthearted. I don't take things too seriously. It's a bit sort of jokey. Uh, the book's a bit more kind of educational. Uh, and I do everything from celebrity cases or trending cases. So Jimmy Savile's a huge one. I've done quite a lot on, on Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, uh, but also the high profile true crime cases and personalities that have some element of mental illness. So we talked about Broadmoor. I've done a video on like um, Ronnie Cray, Charles Bronson, and just my own personal views on, on what drove them and what, what explained their behavior. So yeah, go check it out. The Psych for Sore Minds. Great. Thank you so much for coming on. I've really enjoyed our chat today. It's been illuminating and good. It's been good fun. Even <laughs> talking about dark subjects, it's still been good fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Elise, so much. Thank you so much for coming on. I hope you'll come back on again sometime to chat more about this. I'll look forward to reading your book because I like reading everything. And thank you to the listeners for listening to this. Remember to like, comment, subscribe, follow us on Spotify and iTunes, and I'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye, everybody. Thank you.